Bless God, the not so magnificent seven. Over recent weeks, we've been looking at this series about the seven, uh, the seven churches in, that Jesus instructed John to write to in the book of Revelation. These letters had great significance for the churches that they were sent to. Churches in the ancient Asia Minor, which we now know as Turkey. I remember several, well, it was in the late, I think around about the, the, the 2005 time, 2005, 2006, I had the privilege of going visiting all these churches. And I traveled miles and miles and miles in Turkey to every church to see a bunch of stones at each place. Relics of the past. But that was an interesting trip to visit the seven churches of Asia. These churches had great significance in their time when John, uh, the letters to them, had great significance when John wrote the revelation and the letters to them. But these letters were also prophetic. And they've got great significance and application for the church of Jesus Christ in every generation. So in every generation, these letters have got great significance. And they carry a message to us today as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. One point that becomes very relevant as we've gone through, looked at these seven churches, is that in each church, it is very obvious that the risen Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly what's going on in the church. He knows exactly the condition and the state of the church. And these letters reveal the state of the church. Can I say, friends, he's never changed. He still knows the... Well, bless the Lord. He still knows the state of the church. Can I say he still knows the state of New Life Church? And can I say that he still knows the state of your heart and mine? We can fool everybody else, but we can't fool him. He knows our hearts. In fact, David said, will you search my heart? God searches the hearts. He found David a man after his own heart. God looks at the heart and God's never changed. He's the omniscient, omniscient omnipresent God who knows everything. And here we are this morning looking at the church in Sardis. And if you'd like to turn with me, or it'll come up on the screen, I'm going to read what John wrote about the church in Sardis. Revelations chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. 
Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I pray this morning, Lord, that you'll give us ears to hear what you want to say. Somebody needs to get the horn fixed. <laughs> That's what the Lord says this morning. Somebody needs to get their horn fixed on their car. <laughs> Sardis is often known as the dead church. In fact, in my Bible, when it talks about Sardis, the reference on the top is the dead church. Well, unfortunately, I've got a, another title for it because I, I don't think it was a dead church, but I do think it was a sleeping church. It was a church that was asleep. When out of the seven letters that John wrote to these seven churches, given to him by the risen Christ, there is, can be no doubt whatsoever that this church in Sardis was the best of the seven. It was the number one church. If you wanted to be in any church, this was the church that you would want to be in. They had a great reputation. Great numbers of people gathering at the church. It was a fashionable church. Certainly it was a wealthy church. And it had a great reputation for being alive. Everybody, every Christian knew about this church. Christians were talking about this church. This church had a name. And on the outward, everything seemed to be okay. This church had a name that it was alive. But the Lord said, you are dead. Here was a church that was in danger of becoming a spiritual graveyard. And yet to outward appearance, everything seemed to be okay. And the Lord comes to this church and he says, I know. I know exactly the condition that you are in. I know the condition of the whole state of the church. And more importantly, friends, he knows the condition of every one of our hearts. I know. It doesn't matter what name we've got, what reputation we've got, the most important reputation we can have is with him. And he knows. He was a church that had a form of godliness. They were a, an influential church of the day. They had a form of godliness. A fashionable church. This was the church where, if you want, the smoke was going up. The place was filled, the razzmatazz was going on, and everything seemed to be okay. A form of godliness, but 
the power was gone. They denied the power. Friends, when Paul spoke to the church, I can't remember where it was now, I think it was Ephesus, he said, he said, he said to the church in Ephesus, he said, I'm not coming to you in word only. This church had a good preachers, tremendous preachers, the best of preachers. But Paul said, when I come amongst you, I'm not just coming with my words. I'm coming in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Here in this church, this power was missing. The life was gone. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They worshiped God, but not in spirit and in truth. And it's to this church in Sardis that this letter was written. Sardis is situated 50 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It still exists today. At the time when this was written, it had a population of about 50,000 people. Today, it's only a small town called Sart in Turkey. The ruins of Sardis are outside of this town of Sart. And today, in 2000, where, where are we? 2022. Yeah, but in 2022, a census was taken and there was 4,756 people in Sart. In its heyday, there was 50,000. It was built on an acropolis, a volcanic rock. If you want something to picture how it was built, can you picture Edinburgh Castle? How the castle is built up on a rock? There's only one way into Edinburgh Castle, and that's up through the east in the Golden Mile, where you come into Edinburgh Castle. On every other side of Edinburgh Castle, on the north, the south, and the west, are sheer cliff faces. Well, that's how sad this was. It was built on this rock some 1,500 feet. That was the summit of it, 1,500 feet. And there was only one way into Sardis, and that was through the east. All the other three sides, the north, the south, and the west, were sheer cliff faces. Impossible to get up. There are three things that I want to mention about Sardis. Number one, they were self-sufficient. Number two, they were self-confident. And number three, they were self-indulgent. They were certainly self-sufficient. We know from history that Sardis was an extraordinarily wealthy place. Even the river that ran round the foot of the hill that Sardis was built upon they said there was gold dust in the river. Sardis was the first city in history to mint gold and silver coins. The first modern money that we have in our pockets today that's seemingly getting less and less 
and now we all going on to these plastic things. And well, the first modern money was minted in Sardis. It was here that money came to take far too big a place in what became a very affluent society. The thieves of Asia Minor, they used to come to Sardis because they knew there was plenty of pickings. They would come at night. And if you lived in Sardis, your houses had bars on the window. A very affluent place. A place of incredible wealth. Strategically situated on the main trade route that ran through Asia Minor, ran through Turkey. Sardis didn't need help from anybody. In fact, Sardis didn't need anything. They had it all. They were in need of nothing. Even when an earthquake destroyed the city of Sardis in 17 AD, it was during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, not only Sardis was destroyed, Ephesus and I think there was 12 major cities destroyed in this vast earthquake that shook the land of Turkey in 17 AD. I've been to Ephesus and seen the destruction that was caused there. Well, Sardis was the worst affected city that was destroyed in that earthquake. Incredibly, within 18 months, Sardis was rebuilt. And guess how it was rebuilt? By the money that was in Sardis. They'd rebuilt the entire city again out of their own finances. And when this letter was written by John, Sardis was under Roman rule. And the Roman historian Josephus, he credited Sardis as the birthplace of the art of wool dyeing. You know, dyeing wool? Josephus said it was at Sardis where it all began. It had a theater that housed some 20,000 people. A stadium, a gymnasium, and the temple of Artemis was there. Also in Sardis, it had a large Jewish population at the time when John wrote this letter to them. In fact, the biggest synagogue, the largest synagogue that's ever been found, Jewish synagogue, has been found at Sardis. The main deities that they worshipped there were Artemis and Zeus and also Cybek. A hundred years after John wrote this letter, and it was read at the church at Sardis, a hundred years later, the church was still in existence. And they had a pastor there by the name of Mileto. And he is credited as being the first man ever to write a book about the book of Revelation. Interesting, isn't it? The first commentary on the book of Revelation, it came from Sardis. And in the midst of this affluent, thriving city, 
was the church of Jesus Christ. Now it doesn't tell us how the church was founded, but you do know that every church has a beginning. This church has it at its beginning when Albert Marwood came from Middlesbrough to pioneer a church here in Billingham. And this church was birthed through the ministry of Albert Marwood. It had a founder. It doesn't tell us how Sardis began as a church. But we know that there was a thriving church there that had a great reputation. I want to suggest to you that in the Acts of the Apostles, when on the day of Pentecost, remember when the Holy Spirit fell? It says there were Jews in Jerusalem at that time from every nation. And there were also Jews there from Lydia. And Lydia, the capital city in Lydia, was Sardis. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it's more than likely that people who got converted under that great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they went back home and started the church. Not only in Sardis, but in other places. From all over the world, people got converted and then went back to their homes. And this church in Sardis was birthed. Twice in history, the city was breached. Not only was it a self-sufficient church or city, it was also a self-confident city built upon this rock, only one road into the city, surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs. People who lived in Sardis, they thought they were safe, or so they thought. And yet twice in history, the city was breached. And each time it was taken by the enemy, it was taken in exactly the same way. This is very interesting. It, it, it was taken in exactly the same way in both times. The first time was when Cyrus II, or Cyrus the Great as he was called, he surrounded the city. And uh, they were besieged. Just imagine, can you remember how Masada in Israel was surrounded by the Roman legions? Well, Cyrus surrounded the whole entire city of Sardis. It was a strategic city. And he, he surrounded it. But there was, it was impregnable. They were up in this walls around the city. The, 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 the men of war in Sardis had gr a great advantage point. And there was nowhere that they could get into the city. The, the, it was impossible. And one day, there was many centuries around the, the east of the city where the main road came into the city, but round the north, the south, and the west, there, there weren't too many centuries. There were centuries, of course, but there was nowhere that an army could sh climb up these sheer rock cliffs without having some serious damage. And one day, one of the sentries bent down to look over, and his helmet fell off. 
and his helmet rolled down into a ravine halfway down the mountain. He went down to get his helmet and the men or the enemy at the bottom, the Persian enemy, they saw what had happened and they watched him go down and they watched him go back up again and they said to themselves there must be a way into the city, a pathway that we don't know. And that night they went up to discover the pathway and that was the way that they broke into the city and ransacked it and destroyed it. 300 years later, exactly the same thing happened. But this time it was Alexander the Great who was surrounding the city. And exactly the same thing happened. And they watched from the bottom and saw that there was a hidden pathway and that's where Alexander's army went in and took the city. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that Sardis was a, had a history twice that they failed to watch. So you can imagine when this letter from the risen Christ comes to the church in Sardis, it must have had a, as much effect as the earthquake that shook the city and shook the church. Because they were self-confident, they were secure. And Jesus says to this church in Sardis, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. If you do not watch, if you don't wake up, they were obviously, when you live in a place, you get to know a little about the history of the place, don't you? They knew what their history was. We've been in Norton now five years. I didn't know a thing about the history of Norton until we moved there. But we've been in five years and I know a little bit more about the history of Norton than I did five years ago. When you live in a place, you get to know the history of the place. So they knew that the city had been taken because of they weren't watchful. And now the risen Christ speaks to them. They were not only self-sufficient and self-confident, they were self-indulgent. The people who lived in Sardis, they lived in an affluent society. And many believers in the church there had taken on the culture of the city. They were at ease in Sardis. And the Christians who lived there, were, it was apparent that they were at ease. Their Christianity was just, there was no effect in it, they were just at ease. They were, they were taking their ease. The Bible says a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so will your poverty come, like an armed man coming upon you. Here in Sardis the church was asleep. The people in the city were lived for pleasure, they lived for leisure, and that had soaked into the church, crept into the church. 
and lulled the church to sleep. Paul said to the church in Rome, he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Friends, I want to tell you, we have an enemy, it's called the world. And we've got to be very careful that the world doesn't suck us in so that we become like the world. One man said, I looked for the church and I found it in the world. And I looked for the world and I found it in the church. Jesus said, do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. For anybody who loves the world, the love of the Father can't be in him. And yet here in Sardis, the love of the world had got hold of these believers. And the church at Sardis had become complacent. There's no mention of persecution on this church. There's no mention of immorality in the church. This was a, a reputable church, a good church, a church that had a name amongst other churches, other believers, that they were alive. And yet, they'd become self-complacent. They had been lulled to sleep. This was a sleeping church, an idle church. And Jesus had something to say to this church. Now I want to say, friends, he's got something to say to us this morning. This letter that was read to this church must have been tremendously devastating to the Christians who were there. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Friends, it's interesting, Jesus' opinion is different from anybody else's. It doesn't matter what you think about me. You might think I'm the bee's knees. I know you don't. <laughs> Sue doesn't, dear Sue. What do you want? <laughs> it doesn't matter what people think about you, it's what he thinks is important. His opinion was different from anybody else's because he saw the true picture. What, what has Jesus got to say about my life? What has he got to say about your life? Because he's looking at our hearts. And I think one thing that he did basically say to this church, beware of backsliding. Beware of sliding back from where you were. There's a verse in the Bible that says, he who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. If ever there was a church that this was addressed to, it was this church. They thought they stood. They thought they were safe, they thought they were secure. He that thinks he stands, take heed, lest he falls. Friends, I found out one thing about backsliding. It can happen to any one of us at any time. And it doesn't happen overnight. It creeps up on us. It creeps up on us, little by little. There's a process in backsliding. We come to that place when we realize we, we are far away from God. We like the prodigal son, we're in a far country. We're away from the Father. 
The presence of God. The, the word of God says, if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. It's not God who moves, friends, it's us. Jesus remains the same. But oft times we move away from him. The furnace can still be there, but the fire has gone out. And that's what had happened to this church. They were going through the motions. They were a body of believers who were threatening to become a corpse. Everything on the outside looked wonderful. They'd started in the spirit. Paul says you started in the spirit, you started well. Trent, it's not how we start, it's how we finish. You started in the spirit, you're continuing in the flesh. And you know that in my flesh, and in your flesh, there's nothing good that's there. And the flesh is with us, friends. The old man is with us all the time. I wish we could evict him, but we can't. And he's going to be there until the day that the Lord takes us home. And we've got to watch him. Because I want to tell you, friends, that when we're in our flesh, we can't please God. And the flesh can become so dominant in our lives. And I believe it will become very dominant in the lives of the, the believers here in Sardis. The love of the world had got hold of their lives. The pleasures of the, uh, of the world had become very, f you know, the, the word of God says the pleasures of this world are fleeting. They're passing away. And yet how they can consume so much of the time of believers. You know, I was brought up, uh, I, I gave my life to Christ when I would say it was very author, author, authoritarianism, very strict. <laughs> you know, there was, a, there was a clear line of demarcation between the world and the church. It was sometimes very legalistic. Couldn't go at the pictures, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you couldn't do... It, it was very legalistic, but you knew where you stood. I want to tell you, friends, now Christians don't know where they stand. The balance is, I, I believe there's got to be a balance, but the balance is flung far too much over. Now it becomes very easy to have the, the attitude, oh, we're under grace. We can do anything we want. Yeah. Let me tell you, we can't do anything we want. I have not found your works perfect before God. This church had plenty going on. You know, one thing, one thing that we're going to be judged for is not our sin, thank God. Do you know that when we stand before him, we're not going to be judged for our sin? Jesus took that judgment on the cross. And when we gave our hearts to him, our sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. Past, present, and future. Under the blood of the Lamb. But we are going to be judged for our works. 
The Bible says our works will follow us into eternity. What we've done for Christ in this life, how we've lived for him, how we've given our, our, our lives to him, that's what's going to be judged on that day. And the Lord says here to this church, to, to this church in Sardis, I have not found your works perfect before God. You know, I find that one thing affects my service for the Lord. When we talk about our works, we talk about our service for the Lord. And that is the enemies that we face. The Christians face three enemies, main enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. Notice who's bottom of the list. The devil. Sometimes we give him more credit than he's due. Most of my problems are with me. Most of my problems, friends, are not with the devil. They're with me. My flesh and the world that has its pull upon me. The Bible says, set your affections on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Friends, I just wonder sometimes how much of the world is in the church? How much of the world is in me? My desires, where are they? Where is my treasure? And the Lord says to this church, be watchful. Be watchful. Being watchful is a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. Jesus gave that command about his second coming. He said, watch. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, lest coming suddenly he finds you asleep. And what I say to you, watch, I say to all. Do you know that Jesus has commanded you and me to watch? That means be on your guard, be alert, be vigilant. What happened to Sardis on two occasions? They weren't on their guard, they weren't alert, and they weren't vigilant. They weren't watching. And Jesus said, if you don't watch, I'll come upon you, just like that enemy came upon you. It doesn't mean he's coming in the second coming when it's talking here in Revelation. It's talking about God coming in either blessing or judgment. I will come upon you. Here he's talking about judgment. I will come upon you. Not with blessing, but in judgment. To be watchful means to have an alertness. To have the alertness of a, a guard at night. A watchman at night. Where if you were a guard during the day, you didn't need to be as much alert as a, a guard at night. Because during the day you could see what was happening. A guard at night had to use his senses. He couldn't see everything, but he had to use his senses of danger that was approaching. And I believe God has quickened our, our spirits, quickened our conscience, quickened our senses to see that we have an enemy, friends. 
He asked his disciples in Gethsemane to watch with him. I've been amazed when I've looked at that word watch, how many times it's mentioned in the scriptures, in the gospels. In the most critical moment of the Lord's life, he says to his disciples, watch, watch with me. When he came to them, he found them sleeping. He said, could you not watch with me for one hour? Could you not stay awake? Of course, because they fell asleep, the consequences of that, we all know as we read the scriptures. To be watchful means to be alert. The alertness of a guard, a watchman. Peter writes, be sober, be vigilant. One version says, be wide awake and alert because your adversary, the devil, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Being watchful involves being aware of the devil's schemes and the potential traps that we face. You know, friends, we can't take time out of being a Christian. We can't go on holiday from being a Christian. We've got to be watchful every moment of our lives. You know, sometimes we can think, oh, I'm on holiday, I'll just, you know, I'm, I'm going to have some time out. Scratch my head of people who want some time out. Time out from what? We can't have time out, friends, from the life of serving Jesus. Particularly in these days. The Bible says the days that we are living in are evil. We've got to be more watchful. And of course, the opposite of, to being watchful, to being awake, is to be asleep. And this is another theme that runs time and time again through the scriptures. People being awake and people being asleep. Paul writes, it is high time that you woke up out of sleep. For now your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. And I want to say, friends, if there was any message to this church in Sardis, it was this. It's time to wake up. And I would say to each of us here this morning, if there's any message that the Lord wants to say to us in these days in which we're living, church, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up individually as Christians. It's time to shake off the slumber and the apathy and the idleness that can so grab our lives. And it's time to wake up to the day in which we're living in. The evil days. Jesus said, watch and pray that you do not enter temptation. In other words, watch and pray that you don't give in to temptation. Not only pray, we, we make a lot of emphasis on prayer. But alongside prayer, Jesus said, watch. Be on your guard, be alert. Because when you watch and pray, you bring yourself into a place of spiritual preparedness. You get your heart ready before God when you're watching, when you're diligent. 
No wonder the Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence. Put a guard there, for out of it spring the issues of life. Because what we are, friends, is what we are in here. This is the real me and the real you that God looks at. He looks at our heart. It was while men slept that the enemy sowed tears. Now I want to tell you, friends, when we sleep as believers, it is then that the enemy sows tears into our lives. It's then that the enemy comes. And the Lord says to this church, strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen them that are ready to die. There were some things that were ready to die. Some things that were so valid and important at one time that were no longer important and valid when John wrote this letter. He said there are some things that still remain, but watch out, they're ready to die. Like, like what things? About the importance of the Word of God. About the importance of reading and meditating on the Word of God. They were beginning to neglect it. Once this, the Word became the number one priority in their lives, there were, there were people of the Word. The church had been birthed in the fire. They were going through the motions, but the power had gone. There are some things that are ready to die. And he says, strengthen them. Luke, you go on about people being at the meetings, and rightly so. Because the Bible says we ought to do that. We ought to stir each other up to love and to good works. Let me tell you this, friends. When we're talking about neglect, they were beginning to neglect some things. Maybe they were neglecting the gathering together of the people of God. But the Word of God says, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. Some people put no importance whatsoever in fellowship with other believers. Friends, can I say this? Sunday is not enough. It is not enough. You need the fellowship of believers throughout the week. And the Bible says we've got to meet together as often as we can. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. I want to tell you we need each other. And we need to gather together more when we see the coming of the Lord drawing nigh. So don't you apologize for getting people out of the prayer meeting. Because we ought to be here. No ifs or buts about it. It's, it's got to be the most important thing in your life. What's more important to you on a Tuesday night than coming to pray with God's people? Coronation Street? Emmerdale? I know for some people it's absolutely impossible for them to be here. There's a difference between those who want to get here and can't and those who can get here and have got no desire to be here. There's a big difference. And the word to Jesus is this. Strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen them. 
How do you strengthen things that once were so important to you as a believer, but now apathy has crept in and you're no longer strengthened in these areas, that you're weak, you've become weak in certain areas of your Christian life. How do you strengthen them? Isaiah 40 verse 31 says this, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and they will not faint. By waiting upon the Lord, we renew our strength. When we become weary in the Christian life, as we spend time with Jesus, we renew our strength, our vitality in God. This is what Isaiah is talking about. A people who renew their vitality, their spiritual strength, are people who wait upon the Lord. Seeking the Lord while he may be found. Calling upon him while he's near. You see, friends, what we do on strength and dies. That's what Jesus said to them here. He said, these things remain, strengthen the things that remain, that are ready to die. In other words, if you don't do this, they'll die. Can I say, friends, for every one of us, if we don't abide by... What is sin? What is sin? Sin is knowing what we ought to be doing and we don't do it. That becomes sin to us. So when we... These people in Sardis, they knew what God required of them. They'd received these things and... They knew what God wanted, how they ought to live their lives, and they once did it like that. But now they're no longer walking. God calls it sin. Is there anything that needs strengthening in my life? Areas in my life where there's weakness? Areas that I know where I continually let the Lord down? Strengthen the things that remain, for I have not found your works perfect before God. You show me your works, James said. You show me your, your faith. And he writes, I'll show you my faith by what I do for Jesus, by my works. Faith without works is dead. It's found alone. But faith and works together produce an active, healthy, vibrant life in God. He says to them, remember what you've heard, received and heard. Boy, how are we doing for time? Am oh, I okay? Am I okay for 10 minutes? Remember what you've received and heard. These people had received something from God. And he says, remember. You know, friends, we often forget, don't we? And the God, Lord calls this church to remember how easy it is for us to forget all that we've received from the Lord. We'll go and have the Lord's Supper. Do you know why Jesus instituted this? So that we would remember. So that we would remember him. Do this, he said, 
in remembrance of me. Every week, we have an opportunity to remember. As often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. Joseph was put in prison. Two of Pharaoh's officials were put in prison with him. One was the chief baker, one was the chief butler. They'd upset Pharaoh. Joseph had a dream. And uh, no, these, these men had a dream. And they told Joseph the dream, and Joseph interpreted the dream, and he basically said to the chief baker, you're dead. He said to the chief butler, he said, you're going to be restored back to the, the palace. And it happened just as Joseph had said. And as the chief butler was walking out of the prison, leaving Joseph behind, Joseph said to him, remember me when you get out. Remember me when you're standing before Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh about me. And there's a verse in the Bible that says, but he forgot him. How easy we forget, eh? The Bible says we are to remember the pit from where we've been brought out from. We've got to remember that we weren't always in this privileged position that we find ourselves in this morning. We weren't always serving God like we, like we are today. We didn't always have the, the revelation that we have today. God's revealed these things to us. But how easy we forget. How easy it is. This church in Sardis had forgot the goodness of God. Forgot all that they'd received and heard. The Lord says, remember. It's good for us all, friends, to remember the goodness of God in our lives. Luke prayed this morning about how thankful he was for the goodness of God in his life after we'd sang that song about amazing grace. It's good for us all to remember about the goodness of God in our lives. There's a negative remembering. And a lot of people live there. Because in our past, we've all failed. Is that right? Yeah. Every one of us. We've all got hurts in the past. We've all got disappointments. We've all got times we've let the Lord down. Time after time. We've all got... Friends, if you dwell on those things, you'll never move forward into what the Lord has called you to be and called you to do. Don't dwell. The Bible says forgetting those things that are behind. Paul said that, didn't he? We've got to remember the good, but we've got to forget the bad. Your negative past can becloud a bright future that God's got for you. Your past can be a gravestone or a stepping stone into what God's got for you. If you live in the past, if you, your mind, the Bible says we've got to set our mind on things that are good and just and lovely and of good report. That's wh where, where our hearts are. That's where our mind is. We've got to set our minds on things that are good. If the Apostle Paul had dwelt on his past, he would have never, or remembered his past, he would have never been the man that he was in God. Because you know what he had in his hands? blood he was a murderer he put Christians to, to death he torn children away from husbands and fathers uh, uh, and wives 
and families and had them murdered. He was the man who wrote these words, forgetting those things that are behind. I press on towards the prize, the high calling of God in Christ. I want to say to some here today, you need to let the past go. And you need to see the future that God's got for you. Remember the goodness of God, but forget the negative. He says to this church, repent. Turn around. Turn around from your backsliding. Turn around from letting the world encroach upon your life. Turn around from being apathetic and lethargic. Turn around from living for, for self. Letting the flesh dominate your life. Turn around from it. One man likened this war that we're in to two dogs fighting within each other. The flesh and the spirit. You've got two dogs fighting within you. You, you know that, don't you? Even Paul said, what I want to do, I don't find myself doing it. What I don't want to do, I do find myself doing it. What was it? It, it was his flesh. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? The flesh profits nothing. And this man was describing this war that's going on in every one of us like two dogs fighting in each other. And this man said, he said it's like a black dog and a white dog. This fellow said, well, which dog won the fight? He said, it was the one that I feed the most. The one that I feed the most wins the fight. You've got to feed your spiritual life, church. Because if you don't, the flesh will have dominance over you. Best wrap this up. Hey. But a challenge comes to us today. Because this church at Sardis, friends, had it all but lost it. Had the appearance of everything good but let it go. The Lord says about being an overcomer. He speaks to them about being an overcomer. We haven't got time to look at it today. But for those who believe that you can be saved, once saved, always saved... I read what these words say here that Jesus said to this church. To those who overcome, I will not blot out their name out of the book of life. To get your name in the book of life, you've got to be born again. Jesus here talks about having your name taken out of the book of life, blotted out. So for people who think that they're once saved is always saved, they've got to struggle with this scripture. Because this scripture doesn't seem to indicate it. He that endures to the end will be saved. He said to those who overcome. To those who overcome. You know, I've got things in my life that I need to overcome. You've got things in your life that you need to overcome. It's like a multifaceted diamond, they differ for us all. Some of us need to overcome some pride, doubt. Some of us need to overcome those things that are Achilles' heels in all of our lives. 
the flesh, temptations, the habits that we give ourselves into at times. We need to overcome them. To those who overcome. The Apostle Paul at the end of his life said, I fought the good fight, I've finished the faith, I've, I've, I've ran the race. I think at the end of his life he would say, I've overcome. I pray that at the end of my life, the things that overcome me now, I will overcome them. Amen. And I will become an overcomer. This, you can't be an overcomer unless you've got things to overcome. And I would say that every one of us this morning have got some things that we need to overcome. To get the mastery of. Paul said, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ who gives me the strength. May God help us. May God help us to learn the lesson from this church in Sardis. And not become like them. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your presence and your patience and your love for each one of us. I pray that, Lord, the zeal that got hold of your life will get hold of us. I pray that, Lord, the passion that we have for you will get greater and greater. I pray that our service for you and our, our desire, Lord, to be used in your service will get greater in all of our lives, that we will give what we've got left how many years or whatever that time is to serve the Lord with all of our hearts. Love you with all of our hearts. Pray that, Lord, we'll not become like this church, complacent and lazy. Help us to keep watch and to serve you with the best that we have. We don't want to give you any leftovers. We want to give you the best that we have. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.